0: Hope is not a solution. Never confuse faith the discipline, with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts. Failure isn't fatal. Failing to change is. The following event was recorded on Wurundjeri Woiwurrung country. We pay our respects to the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri Woiwurrung people, as well as their elders, past, present and emerging. You're listening to Sally Warhaft in conversation with Sajidjit Das on the Wheeler Centre podcast.
1: The Wheeler Centre is just thrilled to be presenting an annual lecture supported by the E.W. Cole Foundation. It invites Australia's brightest thinkers to deliver talks that spark optimistic, progressive and future-thinking ideas for our society and to celebrate where we can those ideas that bring together the intellect and a sense of play. Our speaker tonight will deliver the inaugural lecture in what will be a series of ten. Welcome Satyajit Das. Das, as he's known, is hard to describe he worked as a banker and a consultant, though it's a mystery how that world survived him. Bloomberg named him in 2014 one of the most influential financial thinkers in the world. He hates being called an economist, which he isn't, and an expert, which he well could be. He told me Ed Mees, a US politician, described him as somebody who is more than 50 miles from home, has no responsibility for implementing the advice they give and show slides. LAUGHTER He's written a shelf of books including Trader's Guns and Money, Extreme Money, A Banquet of Consequences Reloaded which was published last year, and Fortune's Full Australia's Choices which is out just this month. Das says they don't sell and are not read, but that's just not true. They just don't end up in second-hand book arcades. Please welcome Satajit Das.
0: The Hitchhiker's Guide to Our Crises. There are broken things in my house. Some are twisted, some are cracked, some been bended till they snapped. There are broken things in here, things in pieces, things in knots, things that crumble in tiny parts. Plague times, the chronology has dislocated COVID-19 only became a pandemic in 2020. In 2022, the 2019 virus continues. Sequential time is interrupted. Last year's words belong to last year's language. Marvin, the robot, was my lockdown companion. He had his 15 minutes of fame in Douglas Adams' Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Programmed with GPP, Genuine People Personality, he is prone to PPP, Permanent Professional Pessimism. Life, don't talk to me about life. I think you ought to know I'm feeling very depressed. But his brilliance is undiminished. Here I am. The brain, the size of a planet, and they ask me to pick up a piece of paper. Call that job satisfaction? Of course, we discussed the pandemic. Your advanced civilization was brought to its knees by a virus. That's a bit miffed, it's over. You lost nearly two years of your life so far. We're only at O. There's a few variations to go. I hate his logic. We find a vaccine in months. Have you been re, 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 reboosted? I hesitate. Game theory. If everyone else takes it, then I don't need to. The free rider problem. Didn't you train in economics, or did you miss that lecture? There might be side effects. People are saying that out there, you know, out there. Marvin turned away. Social media, I suppose. Marvin thinks it's too early to pronounce mission accomplished. The vaccine doesn't prevent infection or transmission. Its effectiveness against variants is uncertain. How long does protection last? Remember, the whole world must stay vaccinated forever. I could see the future. Periodic outbrains, lockdowns, border night bears, etc., etc. COVID 19 is only the first trial. There will be other viruses, other diseases. Climate change, resource scarcity, the rest. I looked into it. It was shocking. Carbon dioxide levels at new highs, up 50% since industrialization, up 11% just since 2000. Melting Arctic permafrost, releasing methane, global temperatures setting new records, more intense and frequent droughts, floods, wildfires, rising sea levels. By 2050, maybe half a billion people would be exposed to lethal heat waves. Over 1 billion people could be displaced by rising sea levels within 40 years. Global water demand was up sixfold over the last century. It would increase by 50% by 2050 because of rising population and more water-intensive lifestyles. Pollution of water sources and climate change was reducing supply at the same time. 1.7 billion people, nearly a quarter of the world's population, now experience extremely high levels of water stress. That number is going to double. Food production needed to increase by 60 to 100% by 2050 to feed mankind. Production was falling due to limited arable land, degraded soil quality and salinity, water shortages, and peaking crop yields. 90% of all fish species are either fully or overfished. About two billion people, that's a quarter of the world's population, now experience food scarcity. At the same time, one third of all food produced, 1.6 billion tons, worth around US 1.2 trillion, is wasted. The economic system is a mess. Global debt is out of control. It has tripled since 1999. We are printing money to pay back borrowings. They're paying you to borrow and punishing you if you save. The economy is in the worst state since the Great Depression, but share prices and house prices are at record highs. I was almost as depressed as Marvin. I made light of it. I've been researching the crises, plural, Look at the bright side. People in cold climates won't need to take winter vacations in Thailand. For those who want water views, the ocean will come to them. <laughs> Marvin looked at me as if I was an idiot. That's quite remarkable, as he can't change expression. Your civilization is driven by fossil fuels. Since 1800, Energy consumption has increased 25 times. Since 1965 alone, it's tripled. Did you know that a litre of gasoline requires 23,545 kilograms of plant material buried for millions of years and converted by pressure, heat, and time into oil? You lot will exhaust millennia's worth of stored sunlight in a few hundred years about renewal, solar, wind, free, clean, infinite. Electricity is only 17% of energy consumption. What about the rest? What about intermittency? I discovered that our grids are wrongly configured for renewals. Storage is inefficient. Then there's energy density, one kilogram of jet fuel, contains 70 times as much energy as the best lithium-ion battery. Renewables fudge the true energy costs. An electric vehicle needs six times the mineral imports and triple the raw materials of an internal combustion engine. A three-megawatt wind turbine needs 4.7 tons of copper. Steel for turbines, solar panels, and electricity pylons burns billions of tons of coal. Where's the lithium, cobalt, nickel, the rare earths for your new green economy going to come from? Never, never debate facts with Marvin. The world was sliding towards this Mad Max future of armed groups fighting and dying to control the resources needed for survival. I don't know why I bother. It's so depressing. And you may find yourself living in a shotgun shack. And you may find yourself in another part of the world. And you may find yourself behind the wheel of a large automobile. And you may find yourself in a beautiful house with a beautiful wife. And you may ask yourself, well, how did I get here? We debated the origins of COVID-19. It's the Wu flu, the China virus, the Kung flu. Social media, that robot has been programmed for sarcasm. Zoonosis, viral mutations crossing from animals to humans. Deforestation brings humans into contact with wild animals which carry exotic viruses. You cluster in crowded cities. Leisure travel spreads contagious pathogens. Bodies of water, mountain ranges, or deserts no longer stop transmission. Industrial animal production means poor food safety and inadequate hygiene. You humans never learn. Marvin identified the cause. Living standards. I could not let that pass. I am average. I live in a modern apartment, exercise on my Peloton. My beverages and foods are flown in from around the world. I drive my Tesla or take an Uber to work at a fashionable compass. Well, at least I did before the pandemic. Delivery services bring me dinner. I watch mush on my smart TV. I'm connected to the world through superfast optic fiber cables. What resources are needed for your what I want when I want it? Where I want it, way of life. That damn robot is a socialist. <laughs> Your lot fought for equality, fraternity, freedom. Now it's money, selfishness, ignorance. Marvin was on a roll. Mine, mine. The primal cry that toddlers learn first in epic struggles over toys. Humans have gone from we to me. You can't work together and share. In a system of finite resources, if you act independently, consistent only with your own self-interest, then over-exploitation depletes available supplies to the detriment of everybody. The tragedy of the commons. British economist William Foster Lloyd, 1833. Did you miss that lecture, too? A magnificent, marvelous civilization created you. I shouldn't have said that. Marvin's very sensitive. I felt guilty. But he was right. Human institutions don't work anymore. Most people are functionally illiterate and innumerate. People are so hypersensitive that clumsy or nonconformist comments on race or gender lead to people being canceled. People use freedom of speech to abuse others. Forgiveness, good faith debate and even humor are not allowed. How can mathematical proof be a matter of gender, race, class, patriarchy or colonialism? How is public health ideological. What did Michael Gove say during the Brexit debate? People in this country have had enough of experts. Why bother learning when ignorance pays better? Just look at your leaders. Marvin found the idea of democracy amusing. How can people who can't manage their own lives elect governments. It's true. The average voter oscillates between hubris and panic. Monarchy leads to tyranny. Aristocracy leads to oligarchy. Democracy gives way to anarchy. Look at America, our first world-failed state, Somalia with nuclear weapons. For Marvin, the system only works while the economic pie is getting bigger. You decide how to divide it. It's delightful things like cutting taxes and spraying around public money. You compromise. We just two people agreeing on something that both know is wrong. Those days are over. Marvin was unfortunately right. Progress? What progress? Living standards had improved, for some. But at what cost? On everything, women's rights, racism, indigenous people, basic justice, the same battles were fought over and over again. Politics meant little to people focused on immediate needs, food, health, housing. We're not compulsory. Voting participation has collapsed. Wasn't it Winston Churchill? who said that the best argument against democracy is a five-minute conversation with the average voter? (laughs) Besides, there was no real choice. It was ruled by indistinguishable, alternating oligarchies and undistinguished, unprofessional politicians. Politics was organizing hatreds. Young versus old, country versus city, prosperous areas versus impoverished ones, different tribes, and identity politics. You exploited the hates and prejudices, conscious and unconscious tangle, playing up Sigmund Freud's narcissism of small differences. We had selections, not elections. You chose between the catastrophic and the unpalatable. Voter suppression, gerrymandering, control of information meant those who can that controlled the votes, decided everything. If your candidate lost, it was the big lie, the big fraud, the big steal. In any case, with the electoral electorate deeply divided, nothing could be done. Marvin quoted Bertolt Brecht. The people had lost the government's confidence. Would it not be simpler if the government simply dissolved the people? and elected another? Policies, if there were any, were founded in ideological necrophilia. Ideas tried and proved not to work. There was cakeism, the notion that it's possible to govern without making hard choices. UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson's approach to cake was pro-having it and pro-eating it, too, at the same time. There was boosterism, spending sprees to buy elections. The assumption was that there was an inexhaustible plenty to be handed out. Besides, important problems are global. Countries couldn't even agree the seating arrangements to discuss the issues. They meet, fail, and promise to do better, then they fail again. Voters distrusted a system in which lying is now endemic. Politics was now entertainment. US President Trump's success owed much to his status as a recognizable TV reality show celebrity. Boris Johnson used a media career and his carefully calculated tonsure and dishevelment to build a political brand. Politicians did nothing in particular and did it very well. It was all tweets and no action. Politics was prefabricated consumer spectacles, scripted soap operas, like professional wrestling. There is a legitimation crisis, loss of faith in institutions, processes, and those in charge. You won't like it. I asked Marvin for solutions. There was a long silence. I will have to think about it. He returned a week later with a list. You won't like it. Top of the list was a reduction in living standards. You work till you die or can't work unless you're rich. Taxes rise to finance public services and infrastructure, benefits and assistance are rigorously means-tested, high-density living becomes the norm, vegetarianism is mandatory, locovorism, eating only locally produced foods, in season is compulsory, all water is recycled with limits on consumption, no bottled water, energy is rationed, air conditioning is banned, private car ownership is restricted, non-essential air travel is unavailable, disposable items, redundant packaging, single-use plastics are eradicated, reuse and recycling is obligatory. Marvin, I, nobody, can live like that. 90% of humanity already lives that way. Your parents, your grandparents, live like that. The next measure was to ensure equality. Within societies, between genders and different groups, between countries, between generations, sounded fine. Then I realized that I would have to pay for it. Everything I have is through hard work. Whose? Yours or someone else's? Where does everything come from? Isn't it some coolie somewhere working in appalling conditions for nothing? You poach their best talent. You lot in developing countries are parasites. And don't talk to me about trickle down. New Zealand politician Damien O'Connor called it the rich urinating on the poor. The final measure was to reduce population. Nobody is entitled to clutter up the planet forever. You twitter on about tackling global warming and resource scarcity while continuing to add to the number of consumers. Marvin proposed that people stop having children on compassionate grounds. Humans always go on about how they want the best for their children, how they don't want them to suffer. Isn't the only guaranteed way, not bringing them into existence in the first place? At least it wasn't as radical as Jonathan Swift's 1729, a modest proposal. Eating the children of the poor in Ireland to prevent them from being a burden to their parents or their country and making them beneficial to the public. Marvin had a plan for the other end of life. People would be allowed to live for a fixed period. He handed me Anthony Trollope's book. In Britannula, all Britannulans are obliged by law to retire from their worldly affairs at 67 years and begin a year of preparation for death. I'm 64, that only gives me four years. I knew you wouldn't like it. Techno-optimism. Innovation, technology, human ingenuity, what about that? You mean, to save everything, click here? For Marvin, technology was the problem, not the solution. No one ever looks at the side effects of inventions. Daimler, Benz, Diesel never thought about CO2 emissions from internal combustion engines and burning fossil fuels. Plastics was a wondrous new material, but was now choking the planet to death. Nuclear power sounded good, at least until Chernobyl and Fukushima. Inevitably, we got onto the internet. Marvin harrumped. The internet promised utopia. What actually happens? It was difficult to disagree. People naively gave up their privacy, ending up exploited and manipulated. It allows theft of intellectual property without rewarding creators. While capable of exposing people to the widest range of thought, it does exactly the opposite. People isolate themselves in tribal groups, closing themselves off from views other than their own. Disinformation. Masquerades as truth, factual authority is destroyed, social bonds are created only to promote antisocial activities. It connects people only to divide them, pitting groups against each other, promoting hate and anger. It was bizarre that online shopping, gaming, pornography, gossip, and conspiracy theories was the best that our advanced technology could produce. You call that innovation? Innovation? it dawned on me that technology wasn't going to solve global global problems or global warming. Geoengineering to deflect sunlight was untested. It might change rainfall patterns. Hydrogen was 20 years away and would always be. Carbon recapture and sequestration techniques were unproven, expensive and energy intensive. Besides, to keep temperature rises to below 1.5 degrees, we had to go to zero emissions now and start to remove CO2 from the atmosphere. Our energy use had to fall drastically. No one wanted to admit that centuries of fossil fuels, capitalism, and democracy were interwoven. You cannot tackle one without destroying everything. Marvin reminded me of the primitive strategies needed to control the virus. Quarantine refers to the 40-day period Venice required ships to wait before entering port during the Black Death. Washing hands, Florence Nightingale. Track and trace apps failed. We used pen, paper, and interviews. It gives me a headache just trying to think down to your level. (laughs) Techno-optimism just avoided confronting the limits of progress, diminution of living standards, and costs of adjustment. Our culture was addicted to childish solutionism, our obsession with quick fixes, takeaways, action points, and deliverables evades the reality of our condition. You lot of monkeys trying to seize the reflection of the moon in water. For things to stay the same, Marvin was turned off a few months ago. Billionaire, philanthropist, million doors, very large, very hard company took over Marvin's creator, the Cyrus Cybernetics Corporation. They ended all support. Marvin chose euthanasia. I am 67. (laughs) He was logical and brave to the end. Marvin made me see the world in a different way. Things were drifting, falling apart. Humans had made cognitive dissonance a religion, deflection, an art form. They spoke of changing the narrative, sharing a conversation. Nobody actually did anything. Everybody agreed that something should be done. Someone else should do it. It should be costless. It should not affect their lifestyles or aspirations. They should be able to see the results immediately. So nobody acted. People virtue-signaled, ta about problems, supporting worthy charities, serving their garbage for the recycling. That would never happen. They chose. Denial. Everything was truthiness. Things that were not true, but things one wishes were true. The permanent lie had become the only safe form of existence. As lockdown ease, zombies wanted the street, not the science fiction rotting cadavers, but smartphone zombies scrolling and tapping on their phones. Tech acolytes of Ayn Rand, Tolkien, or Star Trek. Take your pick. We're off to Mars on giant penis-shaped rockets. Having destroyed one planet, they were in a rush to find a new one to ruin. Humans have a tragic tendency to turn progress into catastrophe. Babies on fire, better throw her in the water. Look at her laughing like a heifer to the slaughter. Baby's on fire, and all the laughing boys are bitching, waiting for photos. Oh, the plot is so bewitching. Rescuers, Roro, do your best to change the subject. Blow the wind, blow, blow. Lend some assistance to the object. What would Marvin say? Throw her in the water, indeed, if there is any. Was this... Mankind's future. Things must change. We currently need around 1.7 Earths to sustain our lifestyles. If all the world lives like people in the West, then it would be three Earths. Our technology cannot stretch the planet's capacity that far. There are fundamental laws of physics, chemistry, and biology. Declines in civilization are driven by several factors, resource depletion, environmental damage, declines in the ability to create wealth, debasement of currencies, financial trickery, poor public finances, lack of rewarding work, unproductive complexity, inequality and oligarchy, sclerotic decision-making, corrupt governments and institutions, complacency. Society becomes vulnerable to shocks such as wars, natural disasters, famine, and plague. The pandemic foreshadows how difficult the coming crises, climate, resource scarcity, will be to address. Where once there was a solution to every difficulty, now there is only a difficulty with every solution. Our only answer is to transfer the problem to someone else, defer decisions, leave the task for future generations, extend and pretend, kick the can down the road. But you cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. Without fundamental adjustments, social turmoil is coming. Civil conflict and revolutions like bankruptcies come gradually and then suddenly. One day, something small happens. Then thousands are on the street. Before you know it, everything is burning. Before the fracture, it is dismissed as impossible. Afterwards. Historians judge it inevitable. People now demand certainty and simple solutions. They blame immigrants, foreigners, elites, anyone other than themselves. Historian AJP Taylor wrote of the 1930s, the middle class, the pillar of stability, became resentful, violent, irresponsible, ready to follow the first demagogic savior. Humans might have watchers but not the time. The clock is running down. We must meet the time as it meets us. We cannot revive old factions. We cannot restore old policies or follow an antique drum. Stating the truth is not pessimism. Willful ignorance and deliberate blindness is not optimism. Hope is not a solution. Never confuse fate with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts. Failure isn't fatal. Failing to change is. Just before he died, I asked Marvin whether mankind could overcome its challenges. He quoted the late American biologist E.O. Wilson. Human beings were confronting the task with paleolithic emotions, medieval institutions, and faith in godlike technology. Solving the multiple crises confronting society requires intelligence, but more importantly, honesty and humility. I cannot say that things will will get better if we change. I can say that if we do not change, then they will not get better. Sooner or later, everyone has to sit down to a banquet of consequences. We are just lost souls swimming in a fishbowl year after year, running over the same old ground What have we found? The same old fears. Wish we weren't here.
1: Well, thank you, Das. Um, There was talk of optimism, wasn't there? (laughs) We definitely got the play. Um... When Marvin says, you won't like it, I believe him. And I think the reduction in the living standards might be the easy bit, ensuring the equality, reducing population and having a life for a fixed period, perhaps a little more challenging. What you're saying, though is true, isn't it? The data supports it.
0: Um, Yes, the data supports it. And the real question is, what other choice do we have? I'd like to have a better series of choices. But if you look at the facts, there is no other choice. And we have tried very painfully over the last 50 or 60 years to avoid the truth. This is not new. I mean, uh, Jacques Ravel was writing about climate change in the 50s. The Club of Rome was writing about it in the 60s and 70s. None of, none of this is new. And I'm not actually saying anything very novel.
1: Mm. Is it, it... Although you're saying it in a wonderfully refreshing way, to <laughs> If we have to hear it, we may as well enjoy hearing it that much. <laughs> Are you saying that we're doomed? No. Um, We have a choice. We can
0: continue to exist in the way we do, which would basically mean... uh, Look, it comes down to fundamental biological principles. Uh, We're part of nature. We're not above it or separate from it. And in nature, there are three things. Biodiversity is very important. The second thing is you can't monopolise resources. And we've tended to do that. And the inevitable result in nature is that species essentially devours everything, destroys biodiversity, and then itself is reduced in size. It's quite possible that the future that we will end up with in several hundred years' time is rather like H.G. Wells' The Time Machine. There will be the Eloi living on land and the dark creatures in the well coming out at night. But I can't see how you can sustain this many people on the Earth in this particular way. So it's a question of whether we try to manage this in a sensible way. And we have a little bit of time, but not much. But if we don't do that, then the answer will be forced on us. It's not for us. And one of the most interesting things to me is, uh, and I come from India, as is obvious, unless you're colorblind, Indians have a slightly different philosophy in terms of the way they look at the world. The most interesting thing I found when I came to the West was I'd never really considered the fact that human beings controlled everything in terms of their environment. You know, in India, you die. Death is a fact of life. You know, plagues, famines, droughts come and wipe out large parts of the country. You just live. Uh, When I left India, the average life expectancy was probably in the low to mid-50s. So, you know, yeah, I should be dead. So, I think there's a change that's taken place in the way we think about it. The real problem is we've gotten used to a, life si- a lifestyle, a, a, and success breeds all sorts of bad habits. We now think we are absolutely invincible. And unfortunately, nature is about to give us a lesson in how invincible we are.
1: Mm. Um, this word truthiness. Yes. It's, um, it, it. It. I mean, truthiness is is everywhere, isn't it? And it. It's not a. It's not just um, from a Trump. It. It's far more deeply in actually people that do care in a way. Um, seems to me. Look, I think,
0: leaving aside the very vexed topic of Trump, <laughs> which has its own challenges. The reality is that human beings, I think, are wired in a particular way. Um, I'll give you an example. You have children, and uh, I actually once had a wonderful conversation with somebody who had had children, and I said, "Must it, you know? The whole process sounds just painful, horrible." <laughs> and any time I said I felt glad that I was born a male rather than uh, female. And she said, you know, when I went along to the gynecologist after I had children, I said to him, never again, never again. And the gynecologist looked at her and said, you know what, human beings are wired in a lovely way. In a year's time, you won't remember a thing. (laughs) And that is fundamentally built into human beings. Because you can't survive otherwise, to some extent. And that's part of the Paleolithic stuff of how we've grown up. Mm. And what we're now trying to do is almost go against the grain and essentially change ourselves into something else. Whether that's possible or not, I'm not the right person to ask. Mm. But unless it's possible, we will have to live with the consequences. That's the problem.
1: Um, I love Marvin. I I was not a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy... um, ...you know, it was not, not something I indulged in... ...but my, my brothers certainly did. But he's clearly so intelligent. And we're, we're living... Um, ...we're living in a culture which is anti-that. There's no place for really remarkably uh, intelligent people... ...to drive through this cultural uh, messaging at any rate.
0: Yeah, it, it was, it's kind of interesting, and it pervades very different levels. Um, I don't know whether you watched the Brexit debates, and they were quite fascinating to watch. Now, the BBC was told that they had to be even-handed. So you had this rather bizarre process where they had to give exactly equal time to both sides of the debate. So on the one hand, you had people who had considerable knowledge, considerable experience, considerable skills, Arguing usually against brexit not always but usually against brexit and on the other side you had these people who had no idea what they were talking about and Basically had these slogans, you know uh, slogans. Uh, we have some politicians who are good at slogans as well But you know basically they kept trying out these slogans like sovereignty and I kept think, sitting there thinking, what the hell is he talking about? You know, what is this sovereignty thing? I do understand what sovereignty is, but how does that relate to the question and the debate? And you know, what's it gonna achieve? What's it not gonna achieve? It was, not, it was just a sort of sovereignty. We have to take back control. And they just kept saying this. And the BBC in its infinite wisdom had to give them equal time. So because they had so little to say, they said it many times. And so essentially at the end, you know, it was this sort of shouting match and John Malkovich Uh, was basically interviewed in Sydney, I think it was the Sydney Writers' Festival some years ago, and he actually used a phrase which is absolutely opposite. He said, in our society, people just shout past each other. Mm. And he's absolutely right. So we don't have any discourse, which means... But there's also a subtler element to that. And the subtler element is that we have become very narrow... In terms of what we focus on, we focus on our immediate. And I understand that. People have lots of pressures and so forth on their lives. So what they now do is focus on those things exclusively and, they, and this has always been true. It's not because of uh, social media or anything like that. People mix among certain groups. They reinforce each other's prejudices, because that's the whole point of social interaction, I think, is to re- reinforce each other's prejudices, basically. So you, know, you do that, and essentially, you're trapped into that way of thinking. And you never quite get out of it. And people just don't want to expose themselves to anything else outside of that. And I grew up in a different tradition and I was lucky enough to be exposed to lots of things. And when I hear today, leaving aside whatever you think about Ukraine and Russia, taking Dostoevsky and Tolstoy out of the library Mm -hmm. and not playing Shostakovich and Tchaikovsky isn't really going to (laughs) solve the problem, is it? (laughs) So, you know, we've become very different as a bunch of people. Mm -hmm. And I don't know why, why that happened. And that's I'm 64 years of old, uh, 64, years, uh, 64 years old. You know, I've got three years. I wasn't kidding. Um, but basically, uh, over my lifetime, I've seen sort of a narrowing down of all of that. And that's tragic to me. And I'm looking at the audience here. And if you pardon me for saying something, you're all on the wrong side of that age. <laughs> There's a few of you, obviously, who are waving frantically. <laughs> who are on the other side of that. But the point I'm saying is, how do you get those people to engage? And that's the problem. And, I, and I, I don't have any magic solutions. I don't really have any magic solutions. But all I hope
1: for is we better find the frigging things pretty soon. Otherwise, we're not going to have a chance. It's not promising, is it? I, I persecuted myself on, was it Tuesday night, with the um, federal budget... And this boosterism, you know, that you talk about, and I, and I was thinking about your your talk tonight while I was watching it, and thinking I'd just rather eat a bucket of sugar than see this budget implemented, because uh, it. Sally, you won't be able to afford a bu- bucket of sugar. It's too expensive. It's, no. uh, <laughs> My kids will find a way to steal something. I suspect, but uh, I mean, it feels that things could get. ..very chaotic very, very quickly. There's just these... When you talk about, um, you know, what's being taken out of the libraries... ..or Shostakovich not being played by the orchestra... Um, it, ..I think people know that that's not a solution, I think... ..as much as they know that this budget is not a solution... ..for a country like Australia. Is, is this, do you think, some species-driven chaos... Um, I think there's two things to that. One is,
0: um, if you look at civilizations, all civilizations end. I mean, ours is going to end. It's just just the way it works. It's it's just a cycle. And towards the end of civilizations, what tends to happen is a phenomenon, which is looting. And you saw this, and the classic example was at the end of the civilization in Rome. And I'll give you two examples out of Rome, which are very, very topical. One is, in the end, Rome didn't want to fight. They didn't want to defend themselves. So they hired mercenaries. So again, without getting involved in the Ukrainian debate, the most interesting thing is we're fighting Russia. So we're going to fight Russia, if we are going to do that, to the last Ukrainian dying. And I'm scratching my head going, sorry, who's the fight between here? And the second element of that is the looting, which is everybody just basically goes and grabs whatever there is, not because they think it's going to last but because it's there and they're so afraid and they get the opportunity to do that. And in terms of the budget, leaving aside the politics and everything else about it, what struck me about the budget was everybody's going, this is a terrible budget, you know, this is terrible. There's no long-term future planning in this. But come election day, I'd be interested to know whether people say, if I vote for this person, what'll I get? If I vote for this person, what'll I get? And, and, you know, and that's almost reinforced by the way the, uh, the political process now works. And we've seen that with targeting. And it's on both sides of politics. It's not on one side of politics of targeting specific things to specific groups to do that. And ultimately, underlying this is one thing which really is at the heart of this. We've become a society which actually asks questions the wrong way. So we say, okay, what has to be done? We say, okay, this has to be done. But then we sort of turn around and say, okay, but everybody has to be a winner. And I'm sitting there going, hang on, there's only so much in the pie. We're going to divide this up in different ways. How can everybody be a winner? I'm still trying to work this out. I blame Bob Hawke for this. I I genuinely blame the late Bob Hawke for this because he got into consensus and I've never believed in (laughs) consensus. I've never believed in consensus because you can't have consensus on everything. You just can't, you know. To my mind, consensus is only useful for one thing. After you've decided what to do, you have a meeting with, this is how I used to run businesses, is basically I used to have a meeting with every. I knew exactly what I was going to do, but I wanted to convince them that it was in their best interest and it was their idea, that was there any point of having meetings and consensus. I had no intention of listening to them. Half of them didn't know what they were talking about. So why would I listen to them? So That was exactly what Hawke did too, yeah, of course. Absolutely. But Hawke did that, but now we don't. We sort of try and reach a consensus and <laughs> go, what's the point? What's the point? And that's the issues. And those are the issues we need to teach. I think kids should be taught from day one. There is a cost to everything. Mm. And if you get this, you don't get that. When I was a child, my father taught me a very interesting... We weren't in very, uh, what I would call, wealthy circumstances. But he took me to a shop one day, and it was a very good lesson, actually. He said to me, what do you want to buy? And being all of four years old, I sort of picked out everything I could think of. And then he looked at me and said, this is the budget. You can only have one thing. And at the time, I wasn't... I wasn't pleased, I would be putting it at it's most polite. And I had a tantrum as I am very good at having tantrums, still. And uh, but it taught me something, that there is something about choice. There's a cost to every choice. I don't see that. Uh, And in every part of society now, one of the things we have is everybody can be everything. That's not practical. I see that in educational systems where everybody encourages children and you should encourage children to explore different things to see what they can do. But eventually they're going to have to make a choice. But we don't want them to... Or they don't want to make a choice. So, for instance, a a friend in New Zealand told me this. He works in the arts. He said, New Zealand produces something like 400 or 500 film directors a year. I said, what? (laughs) What? He said, that's right, that's the number of people going to the courses. And I said, how many find employment as a film director? He said, maybe one. Mm. Do you know how many journalists we produce here? Um, Yeah, I I don't want to go to journalists because I have some very interesting views on journalists.
1: Um, Would anybody like to ask Das a question? If you would like to, put your hand up and if a microphone's um, put into it, you can... Start
0: talking. We've got someone here. Thank you. Dus, um, I agree with you, a lot of you, um, a lot of your thoughts. Um, but one thing I'm perhaps not as pessimistic as you about is government debt. And it seems that you, and the thing that makes me less pessimistic about government debt is um, the thinking that goes behind modern monetary theory, which I assume. From your, from the banquet of consequences, you don't agree with the logic or the, the underpinnings of MMT. Otherwise, you would have you would have a different view. And I'm sure you've thought about it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Um, I'll answer your question and very uh, quickly. I did two pieces which caused me a lot of grief. I wrote about modern monetary theory, and it's actually in banquet and also in Fortune's Fool. But it's also in a couple of pieces I published. I think in. Market Watch and The Guardian, and it gives the detailed reasons. I don't think... Look, government debt within limits is a cyclical adjustment. We've known that since Keynes, and there's nothing wrong with that. But we now have this kind of interesting psychology, which is basically says, because we can't solve our problems with anything other than debt, so we're now developing very elegant theories to justify unlimited amounts of debt. That doesn't work. Because ultimately, playing financial games does not change the real supply of real goods and services. That's my problem. You can change it. One of the most interesting things about modern monetary theory is they've all gone very quiet now that inflation has gone up. Mm. They're all sort of hiding somewhere below the trench lines and doing that. I'm not saying it's directly caused by, uh, by debt, but you can't disconnect the real economy from the financial economy. And everybody uses a simple example, which is Japan. I can assure you Japan has a lot of debt, but the circumstances in Japan, which I've written about a lot, is just so different to anywhere else. Trying to extrapolate from that to our position is very difficult. So it's not that I don't understand modern monetary theory. I think they have certain points which are very sensible, but there's a real issue with that becoming the panacea for everything. It doesn't work. And it's almost like they've decided Fabian uh, socialism or utopianism is a really good thing. Then they said, "Well, how do we get there? Will we borrow money and spend money? How do we justify this model?" So let's come up with this theory. And to some extent, it's almost like a theory looking for what we want to do rather than a sound basic theory underlying what we're doing. That's the, that's my problem with it. But the modern monetary theorists have voodoo dolls into which oh they poke <laughs> things every once in a while when I, whenever I say that so i I don't talk about modern monetary theory which by the way isn't modern isn't monetary and isn't a theory <laughs>
1: um, one more very quickly I'm going to ask what eludes us Das that we might not capture in in the data and in what's obviously in front of us? I mean, people care about each other.
0: I'd like to think they do. I'd like to think they do. What always strikes me as really odd is essentially when... And we've seen that in several things, like the bushfires and the floods. When people are confronted directly with one-on-one situations when you know the person who's been affected or lost everything, we're remarkably compassionate... But it's only when you know the person or have immediate personal contact with them, everything else becomes abstract and too far away from us. And I'd love to know how we can translate all the things that we do for that one person that we know to something broader. I'd love to know how to do that. If, if I could find a way to bottle that and together with your COVID-19 uh, vaccinations give you a shot of that, God, I would do it tomorrow. I would just do it tomorrow. But I don't know where that comes from and where that goes. I'm not very good with human things, but if I could work that out, it would take us a lot further down the track of where we need to be.
1: Um, Our time is up already. It was wonderful uh, for you to come to Melbourne to talk to us, Dass. It's very nice. And I'd just like to say a couple of things.
0: Uh, One is... I'd like to acknowledge a few people. One is the Wheeler Centre and its hard-working staff, people like Veronica Sullivan, who very unwisely asked me to do this lecture. She didn't know what she was letting herself in for. I'd like to thank Sally, because she very graciously agreed to host the event, despite knowing me. <laughs> and I'd like to thank the EW Cole Trust and the family for bestowing what I consider to be a great honour on me, I just hope the talk tonight is in keeping with Mr. Cole's rather iconoclastic values. And I'd also, of course, like to thank Douglas Adams and especially Marvin. I miss him so much. This was Sally Warhaft in conversation with Satyajit Das on the Wheeler Centre podcast. This event was recorded on March 31st, 2022 at the Wheeler Centre as a part of the E.W. Cole Lecture Series. You can find more from the Wheeler Centre by visiting wheelercentre.com.